I want you to see if you can, uh, I'm no musician, but see if you can recognize this beat, okay? It's probably one of the most famous beats of all time. I'm guessing you do recognize it, but if you don't, it's from the song, We Will Rock You, and I Will Spare You the Torture of Me Singing. But it was written by the band Queen in 1977, and it was written actually after a particularly good tour that they had, and they decided that they wanted to write their own anthem that fans could participate in, either by singing or by stomping or clapping or whatever. And so they actually ended up coming up with two anthems. This one, We Will Rock You, which is written by the lead guitarist, Brian May. And then the other one is called We Are the Champions. It's probably one of the other ones you've heard by Queen. And that one was written by the lead singer, Freddie Mercury. The point, though, that I want to share is that those songs were written with the idea of participation in mind. And today's the second sermon in a series that we're going through on the Sabbath. And we're going to look today at the Sabbath in creation. And what we're going to see is that the Sabbath was created with our participation in mind. It was woven into the fabric of creation, and God created order and rhythm to the universe with our participation in mind. Now, I want to start by showing you that rhythm in creation. And so if you have a Bible, you can go into Genesis chapter 1. If you don't, we're going to have the verses on the screen, so no big deal. All right? So we're going to begin just by looking at the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1. This is the story of creation as the Bible tells it. Okay? It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so what we have in these first two verses is that God creates all things, the heavens and the earth. That's everything in the universe that you've ever known, read about, seen, or heard about. All of it comes into being and existence at that moment when God creates it. But then it says that it's formless and empty. Or you might be familiar with the phrase formless and void, depending on your translation. And the Hebrew phrase, it's actually fun to say and it rhymes. So I'll share it with you. It's tohu Vavohu. Tohu vavohu. And what I want to do is I want to zero in on what does that phrase mean, that everything was formless and empty. Now, the phrase, formless and void, or formless and empty, the tohu vavohu, actually only shows up twice in the whole Bible. Once is here, and then later it's in Jeremiah during a vision of judgment. But the first part, just the tohu, the, the formless, that shows up several other times throughout Scripture. And by looking at those instances, we can see what's going on here. And in every one of those instances, it does communicate a vacancy, kind of an emptiness, but it's more than that. It's got a negative, chaotic, confusing connotation. And so the word, the word is used to describe uh, destroyed cities, deserts, wastelands where there's really no life. It's supposed to be futile and sort of hopeless a little bit. And so in combination with the vavohu part, what this phrase seems to be communicating is that you've got the heavens and the earth, but there's, there's this kind of chaotic confusion disorder going on. 
And it's not a moral evil. It's not that there's some magic, uh, or sorry, some major moral evil that's taken place to destroy something. It's, it's just that um, there's, there's lifelessness there at the beginning. And so that next phrase, when it says that darkness is over the face of the deep, that's not just saying that there's a lack of light. That's supposed to be sort of almost ominous and foreboding, that there's lifelessness there. Now, I think a helpful way to think about this, like I said, is not as a moral evil. It's not that God created confusion and chaos. Think of this uh, more like Genesis 1 is portraying God as a skilled craftsman. Let's say like a woodworker or a potter. And these first two verses are when God puts all the raw material on the table. All the wood is sitting there, all the clay, and then he's got his tools there. And if you or I were to walk up at that moment, it just looks like a jumbled mess. We don't see anything really out of that other than just kind of chaotic nothingness. And I think the idea is that apart from God, there really is no potential here. It's just raw material sitting there. That God alone is the one who's going to be able to bring order out of this tohu vavohu. And so he does. That's actually what he does in the very next verse. And so we're going to read the next couple of verses in Genesis chapter 1. This is the day, the first day of creation. And so let's put those on the screen. Genesis 1 verses 3 through 5. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So what you have here is the very first day of creation. And what this is, going back to the song analogy, this is the first stomp, stomp, clap that sets the pattern for the rest of the chapter. Everything that you will read in Genesis chapter 1 following this will in some form or fashion repeat what was just said. It will follow the pattern that God will say something. He'll say, let there be. And then whatever he says, that thing will come into existence. God will call that thing. He'll give it a name. Usually he'll see that it is good. And then there's evening. There's morning. The first day, evening, morning, The second day, God said it was evening, morning, third day. And on it goes for six days. Now, there's variation in there, of course. But it's very clear that this chapter is written in such a way to communicate order, structure, and rhythm to the universe. It's not poetry, per se. It's what some have called elevated prose, which means it's written like a historical narrative, like you'd you know, read another book in the Bible like 1 Samuel or something like that that's written to tell you history, but it's got a lot of poetic elements in it, like that repetition, that kind of rhythmic reading to it. And you can get that, especially in the Hebrew, but even in the English translations, that still comes across. And even in the formatting of your Bible, it's picking that up. I'll bet you that at the beginning of each one of those days, that's indented to the left. And they're picking up on that rhythm that's coming with the beginning and the ending of each one of those days of creation. Now, the pattern does begin to shift, though. In the sixth day, God says that he's going to create humanity. And in fact, he actually says, let us create. This is the first time where he's speaking 
to somebody other than just the void when he says let there be in this case he says let us make man in our image and so he starts creating humanity in a unique and special way and they're the only things in creation that are created in God's image but even on day six you still have the evening the morning that God sees things are good in fact in chapter in uh, day six God takes a stand back a step back and he looks at everything that he created the sea, the land, the animals, the humans, the planets, the stars, the skies, everything. And he says that it is very good. You see, up until this point, he has said that everything's good. And at this point, it's very good. And so you'd think at the end of chapter one, at the close of day six, that that's the end of the pattern. But it's really not. It goes into the first three verses of chapter two. And I just want to give you a little side note here. Those chapter, verse, those chapter breaks were actually added later. They were not part of the original. And uh, frankly, I just think they got this one wrong. They didn't do that in every place. But it's clear that the creation account from chapter 1 goes through the first three verses of chapter 2. And so I want to read those first three verses. And I want to show you how this pattern ends. Okay, so let's look at the first three verses. It says... Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So it's talking about all of creation for those first six days, everything being created. And then it says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so God closes the creation account. He closes the pattern, this rhythm, by resting or by ceasing from his work. And in so doing, he sets in pattern, or sets in motion, excuse me, sets in motion a pattern to be followed really for the rest of eternity. That there's going to be this rhythm of seven days, or six days of work, one day of rest. And Sabbath is a crucial piece to the rhythm that's been going for the last six days of creation. Going back to the song analogy, it's, it's the hit of a snare drum or a cymbal clash that everything is kind of leading towards. It gives it a sense of progression or once you hit it, it's a sense of going out and repeating the cycle until you come back again. And the Sabbath stands out in creation. It gives everything a goal that it's heading towards. Now, I've chosen to use the analogy of music here because of the poetic nature of chapter one. But what I really need you to see is this major overarching emphasis in Genesis chapter one of rhythm, of God bringing order out of a chaotic beginning, okay? And, a, and the Sabbath is a crucial piece of that order. Now, you may be saying to yourself, I just looked through all of chapter 1 of Genesis. I looked at the first couple of verses of chapter 2. In fact, all of chapter 2. And the word Sabbath doesn't even appear. And you're right. The English word Sabbath does not appear. But when it says that God rested, or some of your translations might say God ceased or stopped, the Hebrew verb is Shabbat. And that's where we get the word Sabbath from. And it doesn't mean that God rested like when you or I have a long, hard day at work or we go for a run or a bike ride and we need to sit down and we need to rest because we are physically worn out. God's not resting in that way. 
The word can also mean, like I said earlier, just to cease or to stop, to finish. And this is not the rest for God of exhaustion. This is the rest of achievement. Think of it sort of like a graduation or a birthday. It's the idea that you're celebrating the, the end of something, and so you rest on that day and you celebrate. You have accomplished what you set out to do in the form of a graduation. And for a birthday, you're celebrating one year around the world. And actually, one ancient Jewish philosopher called the Sabbath the birthday of the world. Again, the idea is it's one of completion, that everything is done. God's work is finished. There's nothing left to be created. And so one facet of the Sabbath for us to recognize is that the real work of the universe is already finished. It's already done. And so we humans have no responsibility to create something new. And so we are therefore invited to stop from our work and rest in God's completed work. Because anything that we have to do is inherently less important and less difficult than what God has already done. Now, For believers, this gets further developed in the New Testament. For believers in Jesus Christ, we are invited not just to rest in the finished work of creation, but also the finished work of redemption. And so when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, that is both a declaration of the completed work of making you and I right with God, but it is also an invitation that we can rest that we don't need to strive because Jesus has already accomplished what needs to be accomplished. Now we'll get more, to, more into that in a few weeks, uh, but what I want us to do now is just look at what happens on the seventh day in creation. What does God actually do on that day? So he rest or he ceased, and it says because of that, he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Or your translation might say he sanctified it. Now, previously, God had blessed other parts of his creation. He had blessed the water creatures that he had made. He had blessed the humans that he had made. And then here he blesses the seventh day. But then it also says that he sanctified it or he made it holy. And that's unique. That's the only thing in creation that he sanctified. That's the first thing in the history of the universe, in all of eternity, that God designated as holy was the seventh day. In fact, it's the only thing in the entire book of Genesis that God does that to. He will not do it again until Exodus, after they come out of Egypt, if you're familiar with the Bible. So the question I want to ask is, what does it mean for God to both bless something and to make it holy? Because if we can answer those questions, then we can help understand, it can help us understand what the Sabbath has to do with us. Well, first, blessing is the language of giving. You see, when God blesses something or someone, it's the language that he uses, or it's the form that he uses to share his goodness with the world. So let's say God blesses a person or an animal or a place. If you attach yourself to that thing, then you, by extension, become blessed by God. Let's take Abraham as an example. He is blessed by God in Genesis chapter 12. And then that blessing is repeated several times throughout the story. Now, as a result of God's blessing, he becomes a recipient of God's goodness in the form of material wealth, physical protection from enemies, physical health and long life, 
and very importantly for him, lineage, sons and daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, eventually becoming the nation of Israel. And what you see in Genesis is that anybody who attaches themselves to Abraham or to his family becomes blessed by extension. Lot is his nephew, and he gets into trouble a couple of times. But every time, he gets pulled out because he's attached to Abraham. Joseph gets sold into slavery down in Egypt, and the entire nation of Egypt becomes blessed because they are attached to a descendant of Abraham who has the blessing. Now, ultimately, Abraham's blessing comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ, the blessing to the world. And anyone who attaches themselves to Christ enjoys the Abrahamic blessing and every blessing that's being compounded on top of that through the scriptures. But the point I'm just trying to make here is that when God blesses something, that's how he shares his goodness with the world. That thing or person becomes a conduit, becomes a recipient of God's goodness and a conduit through which that goodness is shared. But when God makes something holy, that's not the language of giving, that's the language of claiming. That's when God takes something out of normal circulation and reserves it and uses it for his own special purposes. So as an example, I worked at a Christian summer camp a number of years ago and we had some trees cut down on the property and one of our volunteers came and milled the lumber for us and so we had lumber of all kinds of different sizes from these trees and we just had a a whole stack of it and we used it for all kinds of projects around camp, different furnitures and repairs and all kinds of stuff. Well, when I was getting ready to leave, I took some of that lumber. Now they said I could have it so it wasn't stealing but I took a small portion of it and I built a table that's still in my dining room today And so the idea was that I took it out from its normal common usage and I used it for something special and unique for me. And that's making something holy. That's sanctifying something. And so, for example, when God takes the priests, you have the whole nation of Israel, but God chooses a portion to be uniquely dedicated to him and his purposes. He sanctifies them. He makes them holy. Now, as a side note, if you're a believer in Jesus... The New Testament says that we're all priests. We all share in that holiness. But just for the sake of um, illustration here, God chooses something to make holy that's claiming it for himself. Okay? Now, speaking of the holiness aspect of the Sabbath, there's a Jewish scholar named Abraham Heschel, and he's got this great metaphor. And he says that the Sabbath is to time what the temple or the tabernacle are to space. He calls the Sabbath a cathedral in time. What he means by that is that the temple was a place where you would physically go to be with God. And the Sabbath is that same thing, except for it's not a physical place where you go. It's a designated time marked out. It's when we meet with God. And so the Sabbath for us is both a blessing through which God shares his goodness with us, and it is an obligation, a day that God set aside for himself that we give to him, that we give to him in the form of worshiping and celebrating his completed work in creation and redemption. What this means then is that if you're attempting to work seven days a week, if you're refusing to take time to rest and worship, 
you are both robbing yourself of a blessing and by extension those around you of that same blessing and you're dishonoring God by taking something that he designated for himself and you're making it about you or your boss or your project or whatever it is that's taking up that day. On the flip side, if you attach yourself to the Sabbath, if you participate in it and observe it, and it doesn't have to be on a Saturday, okay? Jesus freed us from legalistic restrictions here. But if we observe a day of rest and worship, then we share and enjoy in God's blessing and in the holiness. And so what we see in the creation account is that the seventh day marks the end of the creation account. It is the grand finale in terms of the rhythm of time. And in combination with chapter 2, what we are given here is a picture of the good life, of humanity working under God's blessing in the garden, a work that is life-giving and joyful and that is perfectly balanced with rest and worship one day out of seven. Everything in creation is living in harmony. All of life is experiencing goodness and life as God intended it. Humanity is at peace with God, with nature, and with itself. And all of life is centered around these rhythms that God created in time, in space, and in relationships. This is very good. This is the Hebrew idea of shalom. It is the idea that everything in the universe is as it should be. I know it's coming to the close of summer, but I don't know if you've ever had one of those lazy summer Sunday afternoons just swinging in a hammock in your yard, reading a book, or just chilling, and and there's just not a care in the world. That's shalom. That's life in the garden. Now, you may be familiar enough, though, with the story of Genesis to know where this goes. This good life doesn't last very long. Sin enters the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and from there on out, humanity is expelled from this good life in the garden, and hardship and toil now become the normative experience attached to work. And part of what we see in Genesis 3, and then later in the flood narrative, especially with Noah and the ark, is the world that was created with order and rhythm and goodness descending back into chaos. Waters covering the face of the earth again. And while everything is not lost, creation is now under a curse, not a blessing. And so we are in need of a new creation. And as believers in Jesus, we are still waiting for that. When Jesus comes back, one of the things he promises is a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. Now, in spite of the curse, though, the rhythm that God created in time remains. The sun still rises and the sun still sets. There's still evening, there's still morning. The seasons are still here. The sun still shines in summer and snow still falls in winter. The, sun, or the moon continues its cycles. The tides of the ocean continue to ebb and flow. The rhythm of time remains, and that includes the Sabbath. You see, it is baked into the cake of creation, and it has not been ripped out regardless of the fact that sin has distorted things. 
And so there is wisdom for us in practicing the Sabbath. It is grabbing on to what's already there and using it to our advantage. You see, it's woven into creation like gravity, and the more we fight against it, the more we're going to lose. It's like driving against those, the wrong way against those traffic teeth that you might see on the other side of parks on the exits, or if you drive across them, it's just going to shred your tires. When we try to work against the laws that God created in the universe, we're going to end up hurting ourselves. In contrast, when we work with it, when we embrace the Sabbath as it is meant to be practiced, then it is like riding a canoe along the current of a river where it seems like everything is going your way where the current is at your back, the forces of nature work with you, and sure, you've got to do some steering, you've got to do some work, but really, it's nowhere near as difficult as going the other way. But more than just living with the grain of the universe, the Sabbath remains as a leftover from what life was like before the fall. You see, the Sabbath, as part of the rhythm in time, was there before humanity fell into sin. It was part of what life in the garden was like. And so now it is a weekly glorious reminder to us of what once was. It is a day of paradise in our world of exile. And so when we learn to practice the Sabbath rightly, what we get is we get a small taste of what life in the garden was like. We get to enjoy a day of harmony, a day of peace with God with our fellow humans, and with nature. The Sabbath for us is a weekly drop of shalom, wholeness, and goodness in our lives spent wandering in the wilderness. It is a day when we get to, just for a moment, forget the effects of sin and go back to the world of Genesis 1 where all things were very good. I need that. You need that. So what we've seen is that God created the universe with order and rhythm. And the Sabbath stands out as part of that rhythm. It is, it is the grand finale of the rhythm in time and it is unique because it is holy and blessed. And even after the curse, that rhythm, including the Sabbath, remains. And for those of us who practice it, we get to enjoy the blessing and the holiness that that day has. Now, I want to close, though, by clarifying something. No matter how faithful you are to the Sabbath, no matter how much you enjoy it, the Sabbath is not what saves you. While you may get to enjoy God's blessing and holiness, the Sabbath does not and will not ever overcome the curse. There is no rule or regulation or practice that will redeem us. That is what Jesus and Jesus alone can do. And we'll get to Jesus in a little bit, but it's clear that he's the only one who can really offer us the rest that we need. The best Sabbath you will ever experience here on earth is still tainted. But what I want us to see today is that a Sabbath is part of the DNA of creation, that it is unique among the other days of the week, 
It is both our gift and our obligation. And when we practice it, taking time to rest and to worship, we will find ourselves working with the grain of the universe, enjoying God's blessing and honoring him as we do so. Now, like last week, what I want to do is I want to encourage you to respond to this sermon by actually practicing the Sabbath. Especially as we get into the school year. Things are going to start getting busier And I want to encourage you to make this part of your weekly schedule. And so to that end, I've created a Sabbath planning worksheet. It's on the chairs. If you're in the gym downstairs, there's a link to it on the YouTube description. Okay, I really want to encourage you to make this part of your life. Because the Sabbath is something that's far better learned by experience than by listening to sermons or reading books. My wife and I... um, went to two different weddings and the same person did the cake for both of these weddings and it was phenomenal, okay? My wife could tell you all about the frosting, the flavor, the ingredients, but until you've had a bite of that cake, you're just gonna have no idea how good it really was. So I can stand here and I can teach you about the Sabbath. I can show you from scripture why it's good and beautiful and right and why as Christians we are wise to enjoy it and to practice it and why it's something that we should do. But until you actually start doing it, you're just going to have no idea of how good it really is. I want you to experience the refreshing beauty of the Sabbath. All right? Well, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you that the weight of the world is not on us that you have completed the work of creation and Lord Jesus, you completed the work of redemption, that we have no work more important than what has already been done. Thank you that we can rest in that. Thank you that when we rest and when we take time to rest and worship, we are both blessed and we honor you in being blessed. God, I pray that you would help us to practice this and to find our ultimate rest in Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.